Okay, you ready? Yeah. Well, then let's get to it. Hello, Ms. Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. Japan. Japan. Lately, I just kind of want to move there. Dude, I went there when I was 16, and I wanted to move there then. (laughs) (laughs) I was there when I was 20, and I was only there for about a week. Loved it. Yeah. I was in Osaka, in Kyoto, and in Nara, studying a little Buddhist art and architecture, hanging out, eating lots of noodles, going to baseball games. Good times. Nice. I didn't know really much about sake then. No, I didn't know anything about that when I was there. I, you know, I was 16. What I were you there, doing there? I went there with my jazz band, my high school jazz band. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. And you were playing the trumpet, I, right? I was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was super fun. And we went various places. I don't really remember exactly where. Did, where did you stay? Did you have people you uh, stayed with? Host families. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you eat anything that you remember being either really delicious or really weird? Every day. Okay. <laughs> All right. I just wanted like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know? Cute. And, well, that's probably yeah. why I got so sick in every country I was in because I, <laughs> I usually was like, yeah, I'll eat that, whatever that is. And, you know, I'd take a few bites of anything, right? And so, yeah, yeah I probably that that I probably would have been like, yeah, I'll, sure, great, cool, something new. And then all of a sudden later be like, oops. <laughs> Which did, uh, actually, Japan, I was really sick in Japan, but it was from something that happened to me in Brazil. I I got there via boat, and when I arrived, I was in the Japanese subway station, or like in in Osaka, and I made, I did gestures to this herbalist who gave me pills that I didn't know what they were. Yeah. I didn't even know how much I was spending on them. He said, I just made motions like I feel sick every day. Anyway, anyway, we're getting so far off track, but he gave me pills that lasted me Two months, I felt, or about a month, I felt so great. And then when I took the last pill, I was like, oh no. And then I felt like shit for <gasps> a continuous like year and a half Whoa. after that. Amazing. But, I mean, it was really cool that he could read my <laughs> like gestures and charades. And then <laughs> yeah. this herbalist uh, got me what I needed. But today we're going to talk about, uh, not all things Japanese, but I, we've never talked about sake on the show. So I'm super excited to talk about sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to talk about... I'm going to talk about two Japanese composers from the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, you know, Not norm, normally we don't really go... I mean, we've done Turkish wine and Turkish influence before yeah, uh, yeah. For, for Turkey Day, which mm-hmm. is kind of hilarious, for yeah. Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. But it's really fun to actually bring things into a national perspective because they reach topics that I think sometimes you wouldn't otherwise Definitely. be able to join together. Like, if we chose sake because it's delicate... And then we chose delicate music, we would be missing out on these great composers. Yeah. Classical music in Japan is an amazing thing. The fusion of Western and Eastern is uh, really incredible. And some just Japanese concepts of thinking about space, negative space, silence, Mm -hmm. you know, empty canvas, however you want to, what's inside an empty bowl, that kind of concept is a really cool thing we'll talk about. And and also just Japanese composers that studied in Germany and sound or went through periods of time where they sounded pretty traditional and you wouldn't be able to really know if you weren't 
really into classical music, you wouldn't know that it's a Japanese composer, you mm-hmm. know? But then you'll hear other music and you're like, well, that's a Japanese, that sounds like Japan, you know? Yeah. So yeah, we'll talk about why those things are and all that stuff. It's It's been um, a, a really lovely, fun time to, to just kind of nosedive into it for a while. Yeah. One thing I want to make mention that to kind of piggyback off that idea is that you know, there are sake breweries that are very industrial that pump out a lot of sake. It's not it's not unlike natural wine and conventional wine. And we'll talk a, a touch, I'll touch sure. on that a little bit because that gets pretty deep into a lot of methodology and a lot of really specific like terminology in sake. Uh, so we won't go too deep into it, although I will touch on it. But um, there are producers that are doing things very traditionally, and that's the producer we're going to taste today. It includes uh, certain songs to sing and kind of rights to perform at certain times that are not necessarily terribly ancient, but they're about kind of giving thanks for the process mm-hmm. and to respect the process because it is truly a marvel. Because, I mean, do you even know what, if, what is sake? Tell me what sake is. I When I was younger, uh, when I did first know that there was a thing called sake, I just was told it was rice wine or rice whiskey. But I don't really think either of those are really accurate terms. They're they kind of get at the point that it's a liquor or an alcoholic beverage out yeah. of rice. But it, that's where that's all I knew, and I never had tasted it uh, until I met you, of course. The person that mentioned that to you or that told you that it was rice wine technically wasn't incorrect because sake translates to rice wine, but wine to me insinuates that it comes from like a fruit or that there's sugar involved in the fermentation and like um, like grapes or like apple cider, you know, you've got mm-hmm. a readily available sugars there for yeast to feed on, to ferment into alcohol. But really this is more a process that's a bit more akin to beer. Rice doesn't have available sugars. So something has to be done to coax those starches into available sugars. That's called saccharification. And there's an enzyme known as diastase that allows that to happen. But sake is water, yeast, koji, which is a mold. And that mold is actually Aspirilus orze, which also is used in the fermentation of soy sauce. Mm. Um, And then polished sake rice. And when I say polished, I mean... Like a certain percentage is polished off for flavor. Of the grain. Of the grain, yep. Because supposedly there are either impurities, well, not either, there are impurities, quote unquote, on the outside, but there's also way less starch there. There's more protein in the rice. So the kind of the more that is polished off and the closer that you get to the heart slash starchy part of the rice, most people would say that that's higher quality sake. And Any percentage can be polished off, right? Think of eating rice. When you eat rice out of a bag or out of, you know, bulk section or whatever, that's that's 10% polished, just the smallest amount to like clean it up. Okay. And for sake rice, anywhere from 25 to 50% of the outside is polished off. Amazing. And all the way up to 80 plus percent. We're going (laughs) to taste a sake today, which is 80% 80% polished, so Whoa. only 20% of that grain is left, um, which is insanely pure. Wow. Um, yeah, which is which is cool. And sake isn't cheap, for one thing. It's far away, so it's hard to get here. I mean, it's not hard to get here because modern technology, yes, but it takes a while, so that 
adds to the, but hey, thanks patrons for helping us to be able to afford stuff like that. Yes, very true. Check out our Patreon page, listeners, because we literally couldn't do this without you, for those of you that are already patrons. But we made it really easy to support Emily and I and Sam and our project here at Scores and Pours. Um, We did a tier system, Mm -hmm. and it includes patron-only content. We're doing recipe, wine, and music pairings or sake or beer or something. Yeah. And then we're also, that's for all patrons, all levels. And then in other, uh, in a little bit higher levels in the 10 and $20, you get, um, you get some merch, some free merch that we'll send to you, which is super cool. And also Instagram, we know you're on it. So are we, it's at scores and pours and, uh, check us out. We'd love to have you follow us there. Give us a little love on the Patreon. It all helps us to do really cool shows like this one. Cause this has been uh, a really great experience. Yeah. Speaking of merch, it was my best friend's birthday the other day and she's a patron and she's a patron on a higher level. She got a t-shirt. Thanks, thanks for that, for being, you know, for being a patron, homie, Jesse of mine. And she was like, dude, you guys have hoodies? I want a hoodie, please. <laughs> so we do have extra merch that you can buy on the Patreon page as well. Yeah. Check it out. Patreon.com slash scores and pours. So Japan, Japanese music? Yes. All right. Two composers today that we're going to talk about, both 20th century composers in Japan. Western music and Eastern music in terms of classical orchestras and things like that didn't really start becoming a thing until the late 19th century in Japan. And today we're going to talk about two fellas. One is Saburo Moroi, and he was born in 1903, lived to 1977. Saburo uh, could at times sound very traditional. He had a fairly traditional musical education. He started studying piano from a brother when he was younger. And then when he went to college, he initially went to study literature, but he did study piano lessons as well. And then he really just did want to compose. And so he went and studied in Berlin for a while. His music is largely Western influenced and that Germanic style, something we talk about, like the Beethoven, the Brahms, you can lump in the Austrian composers as well, but it's often called the Germanic style or the Germanic tradition. Yeah. Some of the greats. Yes. Okay. And in some of Saburo's music, you hear that very clearly. It sounds very traditionally Western classical music. So let's go ahead and listen to something that sounds like that first. Okay. This is from his Sinfonietta in B-flat major, just the opening movement. Here we go. about this this composition when I was listening to it was it sounds very cinematic like something mm-hmm. that I would really want in, in a sort of movie like a, a movie with an expedition sort of theme or like exploration mm. sort of theme I don't know interesting yeah I think a lot of 20th century music sounds cinematic personally okay. yeah and I think it's because that's where all the cinematic music came from. Oh, all right. You know? I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Ooh, points for Jill. Whoop, whoop. Okay. <laughs> Can I trouble you to listen to the third movement? For sure. Um, at about 4.50 on, on this specific recording. 
I thought specifically that this was very like, I don't want to say Braveheart, right? But there was definitely like a battle that happened and someone is coming home to like a ravaged landscape or something. Like it's very tragic. I feel like it seems like something just really devastating happened, but it, and it paints this picture of just so much sadness and remorse. What is our protagonist to do? (laughs) And speaking of film, the composer we're going to talk about, uh, the other composer we're going to talk about today did write a ton of film scores, more than 100 film scores. Uh, Wow. So uh, that obviously was a huge part of Japanese culture in the 20th century as well, just like composers in the U.S. and uh, the Western world. Cool. So, yeah, let's talk about sake some more, and then we'll come back to talk a little bit more about this um, Japanese composer, Saburo Moroi. Yeah, cool. I want to briefly talk about what how sake is made. Well, yeah. briefly is laugh out loud because yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about it for like 25 minutes and you're going to get mad and say, can we interrupt this by either drinking or listening to music? <laughs> but I, I think that it's um, kind of paramount to understand understanding how complex because part of what's going to be intertwined in me telling you how it's made and a little bit of the history of sake, everybody's going to realize, oh, that's why sake is not that popular. Like, meaning not as popular as wine or beer mm. here in the United States, specifically, right? Because it's right? so complicated or complex, I, I th- maybe? I think so. Mm-hmm. And I think the bandwidth for flavor, mm-hmm. we're just used to as Americans, I think, and granted speaking for, but like, spicy this, salty this, mm-hmm. condiments, you know, yeah. and the bandwidth, sake's flavor profile isn't like beer, where it's like no. stouts, IPAs, lagers, mm-hmm. you know, but we'll... We'll get a little bit more to comparing and contrasting sake in a, in a second. Also, the label is quite intimidating. <laughs> it is. I'm looking at about 40 characters right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just in one little paragraph. Exactly. Yeah. I mentioned the rice is polished, right? Yeah. So the desired percentage, and I'll talk about terms in a second or likely 4,000 seconds about <laughs> what those actually translate to in terms of quality. But after the rice is polished, it's then washed and soaked and steamed. And when it's washed, the amount of water that it absorbs and the where the water is from and how the, if the water is treated or not, that all has to do with flavor. Wow. And then it's steamed and then koji mold is added. And koji mold is usually added in like a powdered format and this is what's required to convert the starches to available sugars. The koji mold helps with that. Now, every kuda or sake brewery has a different koji mold that is really unique to their establishment. And every kuda has a different philosophy, right? Some people buy their koji mold. Some people make their own koji. Some people make their own koji and blend it with a little bit of bot stuff, right? So mm-hmm. every that's to each their own. And think of this concept because sometimes if people don't understand what that means about saccharification that I mentioned. the Which is the changing of it from starch to having sugars to eat? Yep, yep. Okay, yep. Having the, that be available. Think of if you have like straight up cornflakes, 
Cheerios, uh, uh, what we would consider an unsweetened cereal here in the United States, your milk is going to taste ever so slightly sweeter in the end of the milk. Yeah. Now, granted, that's not a direct translation because we're not talking about the water for rice being sweeter, right? What ends yeah. up being sake is being sweeter, not at all. But that availability of the starch doesn't inherently have sugar, but we can coax sugar out of it. And okay. that's what the koji mold is for. And koji mold is actually actually a fairly recent, kind of recent, <laughs> uh, in the lifetime of sake, an addition, because sake has been around for at least 2,000 years. Rice started to be cultivated, you know, 2,000 years ago, and then it only took a few hundred years for people to be like, let's make alcohol out of this. Yeah. But how did they do it? They chewed that shit up. Yeah. They took rice and chewed it up, and that was called kuchikami zake. And they would chew, chew, chew. You had to have strong teeth and strong jowls. Yeah. <laughs> and then you would like spit it into a vat or a bucket after hours. And the yeasts in the air combined with the acids and the enzymes in our mouth, that would... Just like there's still liqueurs and alcohols made like this in the Andes uh -huh. in South America and Central America. But so no technology was required, right? And this is kind of the first very primitive sake because it's not technically koji, but it would allow for the rice to go through that sacrification process, mm -hmm. right? And then it wasn't until about a thousand common era, so a thousand years later, that koji mold started to people started to realize, wait a minute, what if we could use this certain mold? And think that's all just trial and error. That's yep. all just shit happening accidentally. Someone yeah. probably had some sort of mold that did it for them, and they didn't know it until they drank it. And then they were yeah. like, oh, dude, I don't have to spit. I can just like use that. Let's try to repropagate that. Yeah. And that's how just everything has been pretty much invented in the food and wine and you know spectrum. But anyway, so you have you polish, you steam your rice, you make your koji, mold. And then you make what's called shubal. And basically this is your yeast starter. So koji and yeast are different. Koji is a mold. Yep. And then yeast is yeast to ferment. And those two together, I'll include a link from a really cool website called Japanese-sake-lovers because it shows videos of all of this. And nice. so you can kind of get that because it me sometimes explaining it maybe is a little confusing, which yeah. I hope it's not. But anyway, you make your shubal. And this is your yeast starter. And this step can take about two weeks plus. Yeast cells are multiplying over 1.5 billion yeast cells per teaspoon <laughs> are happening in this vat of shubo. <laughs> and what's really cool is you have the conversion to starch to sugar happening at that time because koji's got to be mixed with the rice and the shubo, right? And then you have fermentation happening at the same time. So you have saccharification and fermentation happening, which is basically like two different enzymatic processes. Yeah. And that's basically you have two fermentations happening in tandem, which is like this is one of the only products in the world to have that, which is really huh. rare and yeah. kind of hard to get your head around, so I apologize for that. Then you take more steamed rice and water because now you're going to actually make your sake because mm -hmm. you have your shubo, you have your koji, and you have your full-on fermentation happening, and then you press, now sake happens, and that's anywhere from weeks to months, depending on the artisanal quality of the producer. Mm -hmm. And then you separate your liquid from your solids. Now you have sake, and then you either filter it, you can add 
This is, you can add sprinkle, sprinkle flavorings, sprinkled, sprinkled acids. You can do back sweetening. You can, you know, all the things that you can manipulate with wine and beer, yep. you can manipulate with sake too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and pasteurize it or not. And then you bottle it and there you go. Wow. I know, complicated. Listen to that four more times if you, because <laughs> I can't, try, if I try to make it any clearer, it's going to be a two hour episode. <laughs> it's amazing. Let's drink it. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd love to not have you know exactly what this is first. I'd love for you to just taste it and because sake, right? Yeah. What do you think of this sake? And then we'll talk about more of the details later on in the episode. Sure. That sounds great. We'll also warm it up. We'll have that conversation because inevitably it's always a conversation. What about warm sake? Should I warm it up? Should it be colder? <laughs> Actually, that's exactly what you asked me it the is. first time we ever tasted sake. You're like, are we warming this up? Or should we have it cold? Should we have ice? Ice? What? Cheers. Cheers. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And shall we say, kampai. Kampai. Wow, the color is like this. It looks like if Chardonnay that was not oaky was a little bit lighter in color. It's like very light, light pear straw. Yes, it is. And it's cloudy. It is a little cloudy, yeah. It's definitely not like um, the niguri sakes, which they say niguri means unfiltered, but technically that's not right. That just means lazy, like they've incorporated some of those lees. Okay. So those dead yeast cells, they yeah. have those in sake too. Um, so this isn't, just in, for those of you that know about sake, this isn't a niguri sake. It is a totally unfiltered sake, but they didn't include some sediment in there. Okay. Smells moldy. I think it smells <laughs> like, I think it smells like, the whole, we've had the conversation on Scores and Pours about the white gummy bears and yeah. the white dots. Yep. And it tastes like those if you were to infuse them with like daisies. And some mold and liquor. Brown liquor. Brown liquor. Brown liquor. Brown liquor. Brown skin. Brown skin. We were just listening to Solange <laughs> at one point last week, I think it was. And so, <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Kind of tastes like if a pearl had a scent too. I know that that would probably also be marine in origin. There would be like, you know, some sort of seaweed element, and I don't get that here, but it tastes to me like if the iridescence of a pearl yeah. had a smell, it would smell like sake. Write that one, poetry. Yeah, it's a way to be a wine person. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, the first time I ever smelled sake, I just couldn't believe it. I just hmm. couldn't believe how, I mean, because it is like a moldy bread, you know, I mean, it's just that smell, which, and not in a... Not in a bad way, No, though. It's no. like It's, it's like, not off-putting or anything, it's just there, and you're like, oh. Because mold, I think we have that that connotation that it's going to be either gross if it's bread, or if it's cheese, it's going to be like Roquefort, right, where it's like yeah. really strong. Yeah. This and is, this, is, this is almost, to me, like a really, really... Floral mushroom, yeah, you know, like it's yeah. got that fungal smell, but it's yes. but it's very beautiful. What about the palate? It wants, I think, it just wants to feel off dry, even though I would technically consider this a dry sake. Yeah, I just honestly just couldn't even begin to describe. Yeah, I think this is so acidic. It's like I the first time I ever tasted it, the first thought that came to mind was it, it was like a really racy stainless steel for fermented and aged chablis. Oh. Like really minerally, um, really acidic that for, I think, is is a little bit rare um, in the sake world to find something this kind of juttingly sharp. Yeah. But I love the palate. It's just so such a nice change of pace for someone that usually drinks wine, you know? Yeah, it's 
definitely a change of pace and it definitely does not taste, I don't think like anything I'd ever had really, you know, but I guess if you were to push me on it, it's obviously more like wine than any other alcohol I've ever had, I think. What about cider? I mean, I guess if it were a really light, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that I would come to cider in my head. I don't know if I've had as much artisanal cider to make that assumption. Okay. But, All right. Yeah. I, I meant like more like wine, like ciders like wine. Yeah. But no, oh, oh, I, I think I'm confusing I see what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, in that case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let, let's let's go back to music. We yeah. have a lot of rice in our system right now. Let's let's just for a moment talk uh, briefly again about Saburo Moroi because I I want to kind of exemplify the fact that he very much had his own style and one of his piano sonatas. It's very bombastic and aggressive. I feel, but Saburo Moroi also explored other aspects of Western music like the twelve tone system we've talked about. 12-tone composition on past episodes of Scores and Pours before, and we'll talk about it again. But that's a 20th century compositional technique that sounds very dissonant and atonal. So not all of his music sounds as traditional as what we just heard. And so I'll share now with you a piece that's not atonal, but it's modern. Okay. So, and this is his second piano sonata. Like so many questions for you right now. Yeah. The first question is, okay, is this is this not considered atonal? Because in atonal, I a lot of times when I think of atonal, like there's no home base. Cause there is a home base, it's just fairly dissonant. Yeah, this piece is interesting in that way. It ends with a big fat major chord at the end. So there's definitely some kind of home base that he has in mind. Part of the problem though is too, it's not normally quote unquote because there are a million exceptions, but normally when you title a piano sonata, you're going to say piano sonata in A major, piano sonata in C sharp minor. And this is just piano sonata number two. And also it gets confusing when you look at his list of works because he wrote a couple different piano sonata number twos. But uh, this one's from like 1939. Uh, So that also takes away some of our knowledge about it by the fact that he doesn't say it's in a certain key. But a tonal, an atonal piece, if you're like, this is an atonal piece of music, probably not going to be ending it with a big fat major chord at the end because that's a very tonal way yeah. to end a piece. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you so, mind, so do you mind if we listen to how I want to get my head around this, which is funny because like you're in the driver's seat and I'm all like, can we do this? I love it. Can we listen to just like 29 seconds of each movement? Yeah. So we can kind of hear the difference in the movements. Yes. Break them up with a little banter for copyright stuff. And then, you know, like (laughs) feel that big fat ending. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. So do you want to hear a little bit more of the first movement again? Yeah, let's listen to it again. Okay. From the beginning. This is the first movement of Piano Sonata Number 2 by uh, Saburo Moroi, written in 1939.
You know, you wouldn't think this is a good shower song. It's a, I was listening to it in the shower today very happily. I was like, wow, this is very contemplative. It's dissonant, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's atonal. And right? dissonant meaning I, I should we should have refreshed everyone's mind, like non-harmonic, like non well, non-happy sounding, maybe. Yeah. Crunchy versus an open consonant sound. An open happy sound. Yes. Okay. <laughs> compared to dissonance, which can which is sounds crunchy and uh, yeah, cringy sometimes. So this is the second movement. God, I love this so much. Yeah. It's got elements of like Frenchy that I really like, like very like yeah. dramatic and kind of swaying, undulating. <laughs> yes. All right. Here's a little bit of the third movement. Andante Sostenuto, which helps you to understand the tempo and the feel of the tempo. Andante being a slower pace, yeah. and Sostenuto meaning sustained. Mm. Should we make our way to the end now? The dramatic ending you mentioned? Yeah, so this is what it sounds like uh, toward the end, and it does get pretty dramatic, but it again ends with this very beautiful uh, major chord. You know what that's an exact musical metaphor for? Me and the rest of the world. When we have to judge sake, you, you are taught to, and sake professionals, certified sake professionals that judge sake, are they look for flaws. So like, you know, when you are talking about wine, everybody's like, I mean, I, I even did this kind of, I don't want to say incorrectly, but like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm used to putting attributes. And if there are flaws, of course, noting them, but... Sake judges are not, or at least they weren't five years ago, 10 years ago, looking for attributes. They're not going, oh, this tastes like white gummy bears and daffodils and stuff. Yeah. They're going, what's wrong with this? <laughs> Dissonance. And then all of a sudden, it's like, for me, I was like, oh, I like, but I like it ending <laughs> in a major key, wow. home base. Yep. So it's funny that I think 
in the end, if you like a sake, that just kind of reminded me of like, oh, I, but in the end, I, I like this. Yeah. But all the while looking for faults is kind of the way sake is judged. Yeah. And I mean, it ends with that big B major chord and you'll hear, I want to hear the end again because, I mean, if you can, if you're trained to hear the difference between major and minor and what a major chord sounds like, they really stand out because he pops a few of them in there before the end. He fires a few B major chords off before the big final one. So let's listen again to the end. Yep. There. Yep. There. 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 <laughs> there. <laughs> and finally there. And that one. Yeah, so see how he pops them in there at the end to kind of... And before that... It's definitely not as happy and sunny as major, right? And you're hearing some B minor chords mm-hmm. leading up to the end as well. So, okay, this is a perfect segue into why hasn't why do people not know about these composers like they know about the Mozarts, the Beethovens, the you know the Leonard Bernstein's of the world? Like why why do we you know Samuel Barber? Like people know about Samuel Barber and they don't know about Suburu Murai. Why? Well, they do in Japan, okay? But so I, we grew up, we know about Samuel Barber and Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein. Those are American composers. Okay. So, I mean, in Japan, he was no, very no, highly regarded. Okay, no, okay, yeah. That's that goes without saying. So I apologize. I didn't I didn't fast forward my like we know about from Mexico. We've talked about some Mexican composers that mm-hmm. I feel like are fairly fairly prominent in the world of like people Mm -hmm. know about them, right? Yeah, yeah. I I just feel like Japanese classical composers, Mm -hmm. they're not really outside of maybe Japan slash Asia, are not really at the forefront of study on, uh, you know, classical radio stations. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean. Yeah, that's probably a fair uh, observation. I I don't, first of all, in in terms of, Saburo Moroi, we we haven't. He didn't write a ton of music, okay. And so it's kind of hard to find recordings of it, even. Mm. And it doesn't get programmed too often. The next composer we're going to talk about, Toru Takamitsu, was hugely popular and still very famous, and is that level of recon- recognition in the world of classical musicians? I think, anyway, but. I think, you know, I I don't know. Well, I wonder if it's I wonder if it's similar to like obviously sake is very important in Japan. Mm-hmm. But um and very popular, but I I wonder, I'd be curious how many Japanese people can walk you exactly through the process. You know, they know it's fermented, they know it's rice, they know mm-hmm. koji's involved, but do mm-hmm. they like do they know about how long it takes shubo to because a lot of um I think to kind of compare it to something we have here. Mm-hmm. So many guests come into the wine shop I work at, the restaurants I used to work at, and be like, hey, can I get some Merlot? Can I get some Sauvignon Blanc? Can I get some Tempranillo? They can mm-hmm. maybe even, even say, can I get an unfiltered wine? Yeah. But like, if you were to start to ask them, do you like less maceration or more maceration in yeah. your orange wine? They're going to be like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so I think 
like sake hasn't really taken off here yeah. because people have a really hard time even grasping. You mentioned the the script, you know, obviously characters and oh, on mm-hmm. the front label. Mm-hmm. That's kind of just very intimidating. But then you see things like Heaven of Tipsy Delight is a name of a sake, Divine Droplets, Mountain Snow, Pearl of the Mountain. Well, that doesn't tell me what it's going to taste like. So yeah. I, I mean, don't. Well, neither does Cabernet to someone who doesn't know wine. No, but or, but if someone does know Cabernet, they and even if they know Natty Cabernet, they probably yeah. know the difference between Natty and conventional and what it's going to be like. Yeah. Whereas if you're a newcomer trying to learn, yeah, there's just no way that doesn't help you. And even if you really know your sake and you see divine yeah. droplets of whatever, yeah, that doesn't tell me anything. That's just a yeah kangaroo on a label of South African wine, Mm -hmm. you know? I also think there's a familiarity with beer. It's interesting how many people whip off words like, oh, I Cascade hops and Simcoe hops and Amarillo hops, but they don't really know 100% what they're talking about because there's so much more to the brewing process than that makes the beer noticeable. I mean, those are kind of like selling, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, Like we're selling mm -hmm. that people can kind of latch onto something. Hazy IPA. Oh, I like hazy IPAs. Well, I have friends that go, I don't like hazy IPAs just because they have had two they don't, you know what I mean? So I think that the structure of how it's delivered is very difficult to understand. How it's made, obviously we talked about that being difficult. How many people at 21 years old are drinking sake? Here? Nobody. Right. Nobody. Everybody's, and you go to the 4th of July, everybody's mm-hmm. drinking beer. Even if yeah. it's shitty beer, they're drinking yeah. beer, you know? Or I just wine think, or anything but sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think sake is something that a lot of Americans like either graduate to or they are get really interested in or they mm-hmm. have gone to Japan and then now they really like it. But it's, there's so many different styles. I wanted to just kind of briefly morph into that conversation because what we would consider premium sake is, I hate that word but it's an industry-wide term that's used. Okay. That means jumai, for example, is a sake that's made only from rice, water, yeast, and koji. So jumai are those four ingredients, and if it's not jumai, they might add all the janky stuff I was telling you before, but they might only add just a little bit of distilled alcohol from a perfectly healthy grain or, you know, rice or something to boost the alcohol a little bit, to even out the flavor profile. But that's not, that is something that is very widely accepted, but it's not considered jumai. Jumai is like the pure, the pure four, we'll say. And that's, there's a great parallel and crossroads with natural wine as well and conventional wine because they're of the ability to flavor enhance sake as well. Like you can flavor enhance or color enhance wine. So sake that was made, you know, like I mentioned, the very primitive versions of sake, you know, 2,000, 1,000 years ago. Fast forward in the 1600s, 1700s, you know, there was pasteurization of sake. So that's not something new. People were also adding a little very small amounts of alcohol, probably as a preservative in the 1600s, 1700s also not a new concept, but how that got to be a widespread usage really started to happen in the occupation, you know, war times, like 19, early 1930s to, to the mid 1950s. Rice was too precious 
as a foodstuff than to use it for sake. And alcohol was needed during these tough times, right? Everybody knows everybody wants some liquor. So they authorized and actually mandated in 1943, only for a few years, that alcohol was added to stretch Oh, okay. Sake. So now you're looking at sake that was mostly water and alcohol with a little bit of real sake kind of thing. And this continued post-war. And when other countries and the Japanese sort of regained their economic wealth, um, if you will, many started to negate sake because they started, they thought, oh, well, it's so high in alcohol, even though it's not. You yeah. know, it's, they can still, they range anywhere between 15 and 23-ish percent. Okay. But they would be in that higher range and they would be coarse and they would be kind of like when you drink sake, you drink vodka and it has that burn. It yeah. had a little bit of a burn and people were like, sake got a bad name. A lot like certain Austrian wines in, in certain parts of the, the 1980s and such. So that said, Jumai or Jumai Shu as it's known. So so sake that only has the four ingredients, the koji, the water, and the yeast, and the rice, mm-hmm. that's about 20% of production. Okay. So kind of large by, and that doesn't mean that people can't pasteurize it and filter it, but what we would consider high quality sake is a pretty nice number compared to high quality natural wine. Mm. I mean, that's way lower of a percentage of, of production. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. As a parallel to natural wine, we've talked on the show before about people that are using indigenous yeast and low sulfur and they don't filter, but then they add acid and they don't tell anybody. <laughs> As a parallel, someone can make jumai or jumai shu, yeah. sake, high quality, only those four ingredients, but they can add, they can substitute a certain percentage of rice powder that's a byproduct of the milling process hmm. as a substitute for real rice. Interesting. And so now you have that it's technically a byproduct. It's not part of the heart. Maybe mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. but that's being added. And that's something you would never know unless you're like basically talking to the sake brewer. And even then, do they t- are they going to tell you? Right. You know? I don't know. I just Amazing. thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah. Huh. Should we go on to this next composer? Yeah, yeah. Toru Takamitsu, also a 20th century Japanese composer. And he was born in Japan, but spent the first, um, I think, eight years of his life in China because of his the work that his dad did. And his dad loved jazz. And so Toru Takamitsu was exposed to Western music in his very early years living in China. But then when he was eight or something like that, he they moved back to Japan. And when he was 14 he got conscripted into the Japanese army. Oh, no. And that's just seems so young. I mean, God, 18 seems young to me, but he was 14. And he heard more Western music, including classical music, uh, like Debussy and also Western pop music he was exposed to. And he just fell in love with it. And he decided when he was 16 years old, he's like, I'm going to be a composer. And he never did have any kind of formal training. He had he had some lessons through the years with some people, but it was never really... He never went to the conservatory. He never went to a conservatory. He never had any kind of, you know, years-long mentorship or apprenticeship, rather, with anyone, anything like that. Uh, he was just very self-taught. And um, in his first several years, really clung to... The, what we call the second Viennese school, which were the composers like Arnold Schoenberg from the early 20th century, Anton Webern, Alban Berg, 
the composers we've talked about in the past who were 12-tone composers and purely atonal composers. So he dabbled with that initially. He also really loved Debussy, and uh, he loved Olivier Messiaen, who we've talked about as well. No wonder why I love this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it gets better, really. He loved the Beatles, too, so. Yes. (laughs) And it wasn't until he started studying the music of American composer John Cage in the 60s that Toru Takamitsu began to embrace his Japanese heritage. Up until then, when he heard Japanese music or when he, I guess, uh, would ponder the thought or the idea of writing in a Japanese style, it was really traumatic for him because of those war years. And Japanese music reminded him of the dictatorship and the, you know... Atrocities going on in Japan Mm. during his childhood and early adulthood. And at one point, he's walking down the street, I think in Tokyo. He stumbles across Japanese puppet theater, and it just kind of like hits him like a ton of bricks. He's like, wow, I can be proud of my culture. This music is amazing. Mm -hmm. And then for a period of time, he wrote a lot of music that incorporated Japanese instruments into the Western tradition and really the most beautiful fusion that I can even think of between the two styles Yes, yes. he was responsible for. And I, I, I just find his music to be unique and just no Are one else teary? I is like it. No, but oh, I okay. get goosebumps when I think about it because I do think that his his music is spectacular and there's just nothing like it in the world. And I absolutely love listening to his music. I just can't I can't even tell you how much I love it. So when he started incorporating Japanese instruments uh, was 1966-ish, 66-67. The very first piece that he wrote that incorporated Japanese instruments was called Eclipse. And he wrote it for an instrument called the biwa and an instrument called the shakuhachi. Now, shakuhachi is the flute that we're all accustomed to. I'll play you a little sample of shakuhachi right now. You hear it in almost every movie score in the entire world, especially if it's depicting anything Japanese. It's such a common and popular and beautiful sounding instrument. So here's what a shakuhachi sounds like. Biwa is a Japanese lute, and a lute is like a guitar, basically. It's a stringed, plucked instrument. Biwa, there are many different kinds of biwa, and a biwa, the strings are made of silk, Hmm. and they have this capability to bend the notes dramatically, and the instrument, the biwa, was used in narrative storytelling. Monks would play it while they told stories. It's part of scripture things. Uh, and it's played with, a, so a guitar pick, another word for a guitar pick is plectrum. And the plectrum that is used to play a biwa for Midwesterners looks like the top of an ice scraper. It's huge. It's this big, wide fanning out that can be used to pluck and hammer on these strings. So this is what a biwa sounds like.
So Eclipse was Toru Takamitsu's attempt to... Get fi- back to his roots kind of thing? Well, yeah, but to notate those instruments in a mm. Western way. Because, oh. of course, they never had that, right? They didn't have a five-line five, staff, five staff and things like that. Yeah. So he, that was his first attempt to do that. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, this piece from 1966 again. It's called Eclipse for Biwa and Shakuhachi. Both instruments can bend their notes in dramatic ways. Yeah, see, this music I could listen to for days. I, I know when you were talking about it, you kind of made it sound like it's everywhere, and it, it is, obviously, in a the lot Shaka of... The Shakuhachi? Yeah, in a lot yeah. of... But, I mean, like, I could listen to this for days. Yeah. This is actually one of the reasons why I came to Emily with the with the request, actually, not even a suggestion, request. <laughs> can we go to Japan? Because I've been listening to so much Shakuhachi and Riley Lee and this dude and yeah. so many people. Yeah. And it's just so good. It's so good. He wrote a, a number of pieces that incorporate both Shakuhachi and Biwa, including with orchestra, too, which is really neat. But this whole piece is a duet that's 10 minutes or more. So it's just the two instruments interacting and it's incredible. I I kind of like to think of the biwa as like the 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 Japanese stringed version of like a little bit of like a flamenco guitar because it can it kind of has that like it's really a strong like and then all of a sudden it's like yeah kind of a little bit more gently yep played it's you know just it's kind yep, of it's got a much. lot of texture to yes. how it can be played yep fewer strings than a yeah, than a flamenco guitar but but yes. Are we going to listen to some of his older stuff too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the very first uh, piece that gained him recognition in the Western world was actually thanks to Igor Stravinsky, which is really cool. So in 1959, Igor Stravinsky was in Japan, and he wanted to hear music by some Japanese composers. And so he's sitting in, I don't know if he was in a concert hall or where he was, and he was getting played records and stuff by people. So this is here, Japan, some of Japan's composers, blah, blah, blah. Totally on accident. He wasn't even supposed to be on the list. Toru Takamitsu's Requiem for Orchestra starts to play. And they stop it, and they're like, oh, sorry, sorry. And Stravinsky's like, uh-uh, I want to hear that. And they played him this Requiem for String Orchestra. Then he basically became a huge international star and started getting, like, U.S. commissions and stuff like that. So super cool. And so let's listen to just a little bit of his Requiem for String Orchestra. He wrote it in 1957. And, uh, again, Stravinsky, I think, heard it in 1959. So here you go. 
tear at my heartstrings. I'd be like that too. I'd be like, I want to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So he was in his mid twenties or so. He was born in. I neglected to tell you, he was born in 1930. So you know, he was in 27 or so when he wrote this. And not formally trained. You know, not formally just, trained. Wow. A lot of instinct and self study. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's it go. Sounds ahead and very compact. Yeah, and this is, again, this is when he's very much in his atonal world. So this piece was written about 10 years before the one we just heard a moment ago. The recording is interesting, too, whether it's how he wrote it or the recording, because it sounds very, like, acidic. Like, it sounds very high-pitched when all of them are playing together. Yeah. Like, dry. Yeah, that's a product of how it's recorded. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, all right. So there, cool. there's so, so much more and we're going to hear so much more. I can't wait. So beautiful. <laughs> earlier that I would tell listeners about the whole polished mm-hmm. and the percentages because there are two terms that I think if anybody's drinking sake on the somewhat regular, they're going to know two terms other than jumai. They're going to know ginjo and daiginjo. And ginjo means that a minimum of 60% of the rice is remaining. Okay. Right? And then you have daiginjo, which means a minimum of 50% of the rice is remaining. So you were getting closer to the heart mm-hmm. as you go from ginjo to daiginjo. But of course, and so so seemingly a little higher quality, right? You're usually going to pay for that, just like you're going to pay for, sometimes you see Grand Reserve on a label and you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> In this case, it actually means something. But a lot of times you're, you're paying for terminology too, right? And, sure. and of course, product. Yeah. But so that's what the percentages when we're talking about polishing, just a couple important ones to note, mentioning that 60 and 50% of the rice remains and what that means. It's crazy to think about polishing down to 20% of the rice left. We've polished 80% away in this case of of this producer here, Terada Onke. Looks like honky, H-O-N-K-E. And they are located in the Chiba Prefecture, which is just east of Tokyo, the town of Kozaki, which is literally right over the border in Tachiba. Cool. And yeah, they have a really cool story. Kaisuke Terada, he joined the family through marriage, and he was like the 23rd, a member of the 23rd generation of sake brewers. They've been around for two, three hundred years, something like that. And when he became part of the part owner, he was like, okay, how can we, I mean, very capitalistic, right? How can I maximize yields? How can I maximize profits? And how can I have more, less input for more money, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, let's, let's incorporate more technology. And all the while, he was becoming very sick. You know, he was actually like bedridden for some time. Oh. And he had this enlightenment moment while he was in his bed you know, within declining health. And I'm going to quote the website because it's actually really beautiful. And anybody that wants to be inspired by fermentation, if you're not already, the website's got 700 pages. I'll talk (laughs) about it in a second. But I quote, things don't rot when they are fermented. 
And then the website goes on to say, fermentation is a consistent process of change. And when that process becomes imbalanced, things start decaying instead of continuing to ferment. And for three decades now, Terada Onke, they've been following the, fer the fermentation process. They've been learning. They've been guiding as opposed to forcing what a sake should taste like. They've been finding this delicate balance to achieve like a symbiosis of flavor and culture and tradition that is really honestly hell-bent on fermentation as opposed to like what people want their end product to taste like. It's pretty hmm. fascinating. And the website that I mentioned that I got that quote and that little phrase off of, these are some pages that are on their website. What is life? <laughs> Yeah, get ready to okay. <laughs> have that talk about that and sock at the same time. Brewing as a way of life, microorganisms and the totality of nature, endless change, fermentation, decay, and harmony, living fermentatively. Wow. Yeah. yeah Where am I going to be if you can't find me? There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have a really cool little cafe that's dedicated to like all things fermented. They just seem really cool and they're not. I mean, saying they seem really cool is stupid. They seem really <laughs> in tune with what feels good to them, what's healthy for them, what's good for the environment, what's good for, you know, the drinkers of their sake. Yeah. They don't procure any outside microorganisms, meaning mm. any lactic acid that's added, koji that's added, shubo, yeast cultures, none of that. That's all done in-house. Most things are not temperature controlled, which is very common. Most sake producers or kura, um, the breweries employ temperature control. Mostly manual production. Hmm. Uh, when you look at the website, I mean, there are videos all over the place, photos, of course, of like that process done on a manual scale. Pesticide-free rice. So they have, they buy rice from a patty and they have their own patty where they're trying to um, re-enliven and recultivate this usage of like sake rice grains that are going extinct that yeah. used to be very Whoa. prevalent. Cool. And then they're also doing that pesticide free, which is super cool. Um, and they're doing things a bit like the process that I mentioned before. So I'll try not to go over that too much again because I know we're, it's kind of a longer episode. But the rice is steamed in really, in, they're usually done in like these lined enamel or stainless steel vats. These are done in koshiki, which that's going to be my next personalized license plate. <laughs> I think I've said that before. My next, I don't have one now, but if you ever see a car driving around that says koshiki, mm -hmm. it's mine. It's a traditional wooden vat yeah. to, fer to ferment. Um, like a big barrel, kind of? Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, excuse me, I said to ferment, to soak and steam rice. Oh, okay. What kind of wood? I'm not sure. It doesn't say on their website. I oh, think okay. it could be a lot of times it's cedar. Okay. But it's also, I know that there is some oak used. Interesting. Um, and I don't know if any like chestnut wood is ever used, but I know cedar is something that you commonly see. Okay. So they steam their rice in koshiki, and then the rice is cooled to the right temperature. They've been cultivating their own koji since 2016. It takes about two days to make koji, and then they put koji and steamed rice in a vat for about a month mm. to create the overall bloom of the koji and then to create their their shubo, okay. um, which is pretty awesome. And then their shubo, this is all taking now over a month to actually cultivate, to ferment, 
and which in some cases, I think I said before, takes like two weeks. It's a little quicker. This is, they're very open about like this. Sometimes our fermentations take two months. Sometimes they take a month. Like it's very up to the process. And then they press and age like everyone else. This is a specific rice variety called Yukigesho, which is really cool. And then on the side label, which is awesome, which when you read it, you're like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Jumai Muroka Nama Genshu. Yeah, I want to go get some Merlot. Not that easy this time. Yeah. But Jumai. <laughs> the foreign grid means it's only got the four in there. Yep. Muroka, Nama, so it is unfiltered. Nama means it's raw, so unpasteurized. And then Genshu, it hasn't been diluted with water because sometimes uh-huh. they'll water yeah. it down to add, because that is one of the four ingredients, but it, then it could be Genshu, non-Genshu, right? Right, So right. Genshu says this has been not diluted by water. So you're getting okay. like... A full-on, this is 19% alcohol, so you're not having more than, you know, three to six ounces uh, at a time, usually. Um, and, and chimes in, yeah, 19%. It makes it a lot more interesting to, when you know that story about it and you know the care and the process. I mean, it's just fascinating. And wine's the same way. I mean, the story and the music, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we do this. We love these stories and we love this information and it makes it so meaningful. Totally, totally. And, and oh, go ahead. I just I love that you can taste that it's some kind of yeasty, moldy drink. I just love that. I love too about sake and natural sake because I've really only had about five or six natural sakes, like okay. sakes that are, you know, they're not using temperature control, native yeast, all that stuff. Yeah, is that when you taste wine that really is natural, you're like, whoa. I've had a lot of sake in my day. I used to judge sake. I was part of this panel of like sake hot and cold and you drink like 70 sakes hot and then you or taste and then you taste 70 sakes cold and you do it all with food and it'd be like, what's better with this dish? What's better with that dish? And by the end you're like, Jesus, my palate's so tired. <laughs> but like when you have like a natural or as natural as you can get, because there are a lot of hands moving stuff around. Yep. Sake, it's like, God, what a mouthful, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which by the way, before we get on to some music, because I think we should finish with some music and, of course, a kampai. Yeah. What um, Do you want to taste sake warm versus sake cold? I do, and I also want to know why that's even a thing. Normally, it is known that cheaper sakes are warmed up and a little bit better quality are served cooler to cold. Okay. Now, most sake drinkers that know what they're doing, they might like it cool or warm, but it's never going to be like hot or cold. Yeah. You're always going to take your sake out of the fridge for a little while. It's kind of like wine. When you drink wine at 38 degrees, it doesn't taste like anything. So sake that's much more delicate, you're going to just bruise it if you don't drink it at like 45, 50 degrees, right? Like room temperature or? Well, I mean, room temperature is like 68 70, to yeah, 70, right? Yeah, right? And right now the little bit in our glass might have gotten to that and it's super enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Like I like it like this. Yeah. My preferred sake temperature is my preferred wine temperature. Give me a white wine, give me a champagne, give me a red wine and give it to me at 58 degrees. I want it cellar temperature, 56 degrees. I okay. don't want it cold or or room temperature. When you get room temperature, red wine, gross. <laughs> but I think we should taste the warm sake because let's do it. Let's do it. So 
So how do you make it warm? I, I assume you don't just, I mean, maybe just stick it in a pan and boil it or what? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like to put mine in a ball jar, the okay. amount that I'm going to drink, and I like to heat the water first. Just a pot of water. Yep. And then, you know, to boiling or chai boiling. And if you have a kettle, like a water kettle, you could pour that into a vessel too, a hot one. And then you pour the sake into the ball jar and just kind of gently set that and kind of stir it around a little bit. That's how I like to warm it because then it happens subtly and it's not like you're not putting it to direct heat. It's like warming a bottle. Yes, exactly. Back in the day. Yes, but more important. I like that. I like that a lot. Warm. It's not hot. It's not like you have to blow on it. It's just warm. I like it. It's soothing, I think, anyway, because I see your face. I know you're not a fan well, of it I, as much. I would like it if I were eating something, I think. Like if I were having the right sushi, maybe, or if I were that, because this is such high quality. I mean, it's like $43 sake. I think I get more nuance when it's, but here, okay, this is me not loving warm sake talking, so I have to specify that right now. Yeah. I do like it as well. I do you notice how different taste tastes side by side. Do oh, you, it's so different. Do you notice what's different besides temperature? The warmer sake is more sour almost. There's like a stronger thing, but then there's nuanced flavors that are almost gone of mm-hmm. the warm sake. So it's almost like when you warm it, and again, you didn't boil it or even close to boil it. Yeah, because you never want warm sake above like 105, you know, so it's just over your body temperature, basically. Yeah, it's just warm. And it, like I say, it's got more of that angular, but then less of like a foundation, I would say. Then the cooler one has, you can taste the mold more prevalently. Mm -hmm. You can taste the yeasty, fermenty, the ricey. You, You can taste those ingredients more Clearly, I think, when it's cooler. But I, I think warmed, it's really nice as well. It just turns into something different. I think, yeah, I agree with you. And I also think that the texture becomes more, Milky. like, less less chiseled. But yeah. more a little. there's a little, the smallest amount of bitterness when it's warm yeah. that I don't perceive yeah. when it's cooler. I agree. Um, so I just, I think that this is a testament. Like, I really do think that sake is a really interactive beverage if you give it, because wine, you can kind of like slug and great. You could do that too with sake, obviously, and beer meaning. But I mean, with sake, you really want to like, it's just so interesting to see what the flavors, what does it go with? You know, I've tried sake with flipping bolognese and I've been like, (laughs) "Mm, wow. Like, it's just flavors combinations you don't expect, right? Yep. And then you have it warm and you're like, wow, that's really cool. And like yeah. with, with like just something simple, like one of my favorite dishes is a really simple like brown rice, tamari or a little soy sauce, a little poached egg. And my friend Jim Bovino, he has this operation called Topos Ferments, little, t- little fermented veg, done. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. I'm done here. With Maybe- sake. With sake. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, well, that's one of my favorite dishes. Mm-hmm. But with sake, it's just so pretty. Like the whole situation, you're just like in an art museum, but you're eating. Mm-hmm. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of reminds me like the first time I had sake and the first time I had kombucha and just being, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever had. There's so much going on here. And can now I have it all the time? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what is increasingly exciting and frustrating, obviously, in a world of beverage, you want to be inspired and keep tasting new things and learn, but you also, their things can get pretty far flung. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we are in Minneapolis. We were the first place outside of Japan to have a Kura. Really? Moto I, the restaurant Moto I, was making their own sake a decade plus ago. You have Kuras now in, you know, all over the world. Outside wow. of Japan, you have one in Brooklyn. They're making their own sake, and mm. it's granted. I'm not not all these are natural, yeah. But like that's so cool. Like it sake is. is becoming a thing, and that's mm-hmm. awesome. It's mm-hmm. just going to take forever. Yeah. <laughs> so let's listen to a couple more pieces by Toru Takamitsu. The next couple pieces we're going to talk about by uh, Toru Takamitsu. One includes a Japanese instrument, and one is a piano piece. We'll start with the Japanese instrument piece, the instrument called the show. The show is one of the coolest things ever. It's, I really will put a picture on uh, the Patreon page because it's difficult to describe. It has 15 bamboo reeds and there are 15 chords that this little instrument can play. Oh, this is that instrument you showed me that woman play the YouTube video. Yeah. 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 That's it's, gonna, it's, that's it's gonna amazing. Happen. It it it's uh kind of um how would you describe that shape? I mean it's 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 kind of like it's, it's cylindrical. All the, yeah, it is. And, and they're all they're all kind of like stacked around themselves, yep, but like all in the a round way. Are like stacked around themselves, uh, almost like a pipe organ. If you look at the pipes in in, in a church of the pipe organ, and if you just folded those around to make a circle, that's what How a show How did we not get like. there faster? I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's much smaller, and it has little reeds, and when you blow on it, it kind of sounds like a really high-pitched harmonica. And just like a harmonica, you can make sounds blowing in it and sucking air back through it, right? So, uh, the and these little holes, the way you have to hold it, it's really incredible. The picture will help you to, to uh, see it. But the shape itself, as is so true with, I mean, everything just has is loaded with meaning, right? Uh, in uh, Japanese culture in particular, the shape itself of the show symbolizes a phoenix at rest with its wings. Of course it does. Yeah. Do you want a sip of warm sake? Just yeah. To, just because just I saw cause. you just get all like. <laughs> and two of the reeds, the very longest two, are not real. Well, they're real. They just don't sound. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So why are they there? Ornamental, because they look cool. Of course. Naturally. The show is, it's both quiet, but has quite a presence because of its high pitch. However, it could very easily be overwhelmed by a full orchestra. So the very final piece that Toru Takamitsu wrote that included a Japanese instrument is called Ceremonial, an Autumn Ode. And he wrote it in 1992. He died in 96. So four years before he died, he wrote this piece for the show and an orchestra. And the piece is basically in what we would call an ABA style. So you hear the show by itself, then the orchestra comes in for a little bit, and then the show comes back and the piece ends. The show and the orchestra do not sound at the same time. And I 
love this piece. The chords that the show makes, there are traditional chords on the show, and there are non-traditional chords, just like you would think on a guitar, right? There are traditional major, minor, diminished, augmented chords, but there are also really weird sus chords and whatever. And the show is like that as well. So let's hear the beginning of this piece, and then we'll hear some of the orchestra part, which is so cool. And then uh, we'll hear a little bit of the end as well. Okay. This is called Ceremonial, and then in parentheses, an autumn ode. I would urge you all to look at the video that Emily's going to include from YouTube that is someone playing this instrument because it'll give you a whole other dimension and appreciation for the high pitch. So each reed has a hole in it, just one hole. So as you're hearing notes change, the person who's playing, and it's uh, she, in fact, it's the woman that Toru Takamitsu wrote this piece for, Mayumi Miyata. As notes change, she's only moving one finger, you know. I mean, she has moving multiple fingers, but the point being that each reed only has one hole. So it's not like... There's this wide range of places for her fingers to go. She's either opening the hole or closing it. And that's it. Mind blown. So let's go ahead and skip ahead to a little bit of the orchestral section. It's very beautiful. And I think he's able to align these two entities in such a beautiful way, given that they don't play together at the same time, they're just put together so beautifully. how he can make the orchestra sound like the show. always silence somewhere. Maybe that silence could be paralleled with sake to like, there is a lack of description 
that exists, mm. I think, in the modern vernacular. I mean, there is obviously in Japanese and there are for people that dedicate their lives outside of Japan to sake, but for like kind of just your average drinker mm-hmm. that tastes sake and likes it, I think mm-hmm. for them to describe why they like it, it's very difficult. And I wonder if that almost is like this thing about appreciation of space. Perhaps. And that in sake that exists as well. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Yeah. So you can hear the, the orchestra bending pitches, and a, a show can do that as well, mm-hmm. just like you would on an open hold flute, or a tin whistle, perhaps, or the shakuhachi, or the shakuhachi that you can move your finger halfway over the hole, and do kind of a half hole. I do that technique. on my shark whistle that I have at home. And people <laughs> can do this on flutes that have open keys. You can do this on clarinets. Um, so, yeah, and the show can do that as well. So that's what's the, why the orchestra was mimicking that sound. And then the show comes back and ends the piece all on its own, and it's absolutely beautiful. Toru Takamitsu likened his music to a Japanese garden, and Japanese gardens are also very much embrace the word, the term ma, which is that idea of negative space that we talked about at the very beginning of the episode where you're, ta- you're not talking about the bowl, you're talking about the emptiness inside the bowl and that that emptiness still is something. It's, it still has presence, even though there's nothing there. And Japanese gardens are designed very much about the space around the garden as well and the, the, the space where there isn't anything growing. Mm-hmm. And in, therefore, his music, it's as much... It, about the notes that you're hearing as when you're not hearing anything. And one of my favorite examples of this is a piece he wrote called Rain Tree Sketch Number 2. And he wrote this in honor of Olivier Messiaen when Messiaen died. So this came out in 1992. And it's in, much like the piece we just heard, Ceremonial, this is also in an ABA form. So you hear material at the beginning, then you hear new stuff, and then the material from the beginning more or less comes back again. And what I love is what he says about these sections, the instructions he gives the performer for this opening part, is celestially light. right there that that little trail off of the piano that's like the negative i'm kind of quiet over here right now because i'm like all in my negative space what is (laughs) there is something in the bowl or the cup that is empty (laughs) but there really is something there Mm -hmm. but it's not just space yeah like what energy Mm -hmm. so i'm just sitting here 
I thought Emily was going to like be like, and so yeah, come pie to scores and pours. And then she's Not like, yet. listen to this. So I was like, <laughs> whoa. The B section, which sounds much different, it's much more tonal, I think, uh, is called Joyful. this echo back and forth. I mean, it's, yeah, it's more harmonic or whatever, but it's not by much. I mean, there's yep. still a little dissonance in there to kind of oh, yeah. crunch up the pattern. Yep. beautiful piece. To negative space. To Japan. Whoa. (laughs) Come by to scores and pours. Scores and pours, come by. Thanks for listening to Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information, a playlist and a merch list. Uh, Also, the photos and videos we talked about from this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pores. We are on Instagram at scores and pores, all one word, no ampersand. And you can also direct message us there with any show ideas, questions you have, comments, and also please rate us wherever you listen to this podcast. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese, our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. June. June. Little kitty. <laughs>